Welcome to another episode of Mastermind Discussions. I'm your host, Matthew LaCroix. Today, on episode number 13, I'm joined by esoteric researcher, spiritual healer, and writer Paul Wallace, who's written two books, Escape from Eden, and most recently, The Scars of Eden. And he joins us all the way from Australia. Paul, how are you doing, my friend? Matthew, g'day. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure, Paul. You are one of my favorite people. I have some of the most respect for you. Thanks so much for joining me. And I just want to mention to everybody that today, Paul is going to be bringing some unique angles to these discussions. He's going to be talking about his fantastic background and how he got into all this research, what exactly he focuses on, what he brings to the table. He's going to talk about how his work relates to everything from understanding and reading ancient texts to human origins to UFOs to everything from spirituality all the way to um, the longevity of ancient kings in Sumer. He, he truly covers the entire spectrum of uh, the wheel of truth and ancient history. So Paul, maybe mention to everybody just what you've been up to right now um, and what's going on in your life, what's recent, and then we can talk a little bit about your background. Oh, thanks so much for that intro, Matthew. The feeling is absolutely mutual. My research at the moment focuses on the world's ancestral narratives, for the insights they hold into our origins as a species and our human potential. And my background, my way into that has been through the world of ministry. And people are engaging with my most recent books, the two, The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden, which really focus on those questions and the question of paleo contact, our ancestors' contact with extraterrestrial visitors who I believe came and colonized this planet in the deep past. And what surprises people about my presence in this field is that I've got here through 33 years in Christian ministry. I worked as an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia, as a church doctor, as a theological educator, and the focus of my training work was training pastors in the science of interpreting ancient texts. That's called hermeneutics. That's really been my great passion. I think I got so into hermeneutics in particular because my first love was languages. I was very fortunate growing up in the UK that in the public system of education, I was able to learn French, uh, German, Italian, Latin, Portuguese. Later, I got into New Testament Greek. And so whenever I come to an ancient text and the question is, what is this about? I always start with the question, well, what do the words mean? And it's that kind of focus that's got me into all the territory that I'm now exploring, uh, the esoteric history that, that you mentioned at the beginning and the whole topic of paleo contact. The subtitle of my latest book, The Scars of Eden, is Has Humanity Confused Ideas of God with Memories of ET Contact? And that's really my current focus. And what gives me the energy to keep probing that territory, which is, if I say that when you're probing territory that's a little off-center in terms of mainstream conversation and mainstream consensus, that's not usually the most financially rewarding kind of life to choose, as you know, Matthew. Um, 
you really take your life in your hands when you get into this field of study and your career and your reputation. So you do need a certain pep in your step to keep going. And what gives me the energy is the interactions I have with people who respond to my work. So when Escaping from Eden came out, which is just over a year ago, which looks into the question of the meaning behind the texts that became the Bible, that became the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And I argue for some translation choices that lays open the extraterrestrial aspect of those stories. Well, I put that book out and immediately I started to be contacted by various groups of people and probably the main group would be veterans of war who have contacted me because their experiences in the theater of war have dislodged them from the mainstream conversation and mainstream consensus thinking war on its own can do that um, understanding your place in the world, having fought in a war, can do that. And that's done that to previous generations. But when I hear from veterans of the 2003 incursion into Iraq or veterans of war in Afghanistan, there's often another layer to it. And the other layer is that they've gone in and found that their particular unit was there not for the publicly stated reasons, not to retrieve weapons of mass destruction, not to ensure the safety of, of the Kurds, not to protect the Iraqis from despotism, but they were there on an archeological mission to retrieve certain items and take them from there, sequester them for new owners uh, in the USA. It's so disturbing and dislodging at so many levels and it takes them straight to these Sumerian stories because they were able to join the dots and realize these artifacts connected with the ancient Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, Assyrian stories. And as soon as they're researching that, that brings them to me and they come to me because they're trying to process their own experiences. Other people who contact me are people who've had anomalous experiences that have broken them out of their previous worldview and they could be close encounters that they believe are with ET entities or they could be other kinds of anomalous experiences that just don't fit within the boxes they were previously in. The other people I hear from are people like me who've come from the world of ministry and who've had to deal with anomalies in the stories we tell from the biblical texts that have just not sat right with them. They know there's something else going on in the text. They know there's an earlier version of this story that has somehow been translated out of being obvious. And then they've got nowhere to go with those questions. And so they come to me with that. And it's all those kinds of conversations that give me fuel for my fire. And another strand I should mention is people who read Escaping from Eden and they come to me saying, I know some of this story because my family has carried this story because I did tra traditional initiation in my mother country in Southern Africa. And when I was 13, our tribal elders told me all the information that you've now put out there in your book. So when you start getting into these kinds of conversations, that has to lead somewhere. And if you're a writer, it has to lead to a book. And it was all that kind of interaction that's led me to 
the scars of Eden. That's fantastic. That was a great breakdown. I love how you you put that into several different categories, right? You put that into how this trauma of going to war. And to me, I, I look at war from the outside, from an objective standpoint, these, you know, when you look at how we redefine what man is, this human accomplishment of perfection with, you know, the chakras of light reaching the higher states of vibrational frequency, right? Being these conscious co-creators of our world. And then at the same time, these corporate fat cats at the very top that have very, um, dark reasoning behind their motives behind sending us to these conflicts against each other for, for brainwashing us into nationality and and this idea that we should fight this evil that's from somewhere else and to me i look at those events and it makes sense to me when you say veterans have their perspective completely shattered when they go through those experiences those traumatic traumatic experiences and i want that to be one of the that's one of the highlights and discussions today when we're we're having discussing his latest book the scars of eden as well as the other concepts that come out of that book which is these traumas and this ancestral memory and these scars that we end up carrying on with us they truly do disrupt so many things in our reality and then you also connected on that on top the other topic that i wanted to broach into as well you have the whole ex ufo contactee strange anomalies where people contact you and try to ask you whether or not that's something related to something some ancient text somewhere or, or an experience that you had on your own and then finally you put all the categories together with your experience as a priest and as, and looking at these writings and finding, saying, not only I know that these stories are from earlier stories and then rewritten, but I also know from experience that these words and these translations are often incorrect. And I love, Paul, how you take that um, umbrella and then put it together in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. And I think it's unique and and really quite, um, quite helpful for so many others. So I I just want to tell you that I truly enjoyed the Scars of Eden and all the different angles that you you put with so many different people you're in contact with. Well, I can tell you it was a writing challenge because when you get into any of these topics, you run down any of these rabbit holes, you suddenly realize you're in a rabbit warren where all these topics join up. And as a writer, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this book could end up being about everything. <laughs> How on earth do I keep my <laughs> keep my compass through this? And, and that was one of the challenges. But it reflects, I think, our own experiences that people can have their, their world changed by going to war, or they can have their world changed by reading an ancient text and suddenly seeing it differently or having an experience. Whatever it is, you're suddenly in a new world you've woken up in a new universe and you're having to make sense of it kind of from scratch. And so in the scars of Eden, what I've really tried to do is hold the hand of any person who's in that kind of territory. They've taken some red pill. Uh, it could be anything. It could be, they suddenly realize who shot Kennedy, you know, it could be something like that, but whatever the red pill is that's woken them up, suddenly they're reframing their world and, that's really what the scars of Eden does. Yeah, it, it truly does. It was it was wonderful. Uh, but before I read a segment from Scars of Eden, I just wanted you to explain a little bit more about 
how you got down this road. Like, how did this path start? Was there one moment where you looked up in the sky and saw something strange or you read something in a text? I'm always curious because I actually find the stories of how individuals got went came down this road and followed it and then stuck with it to be some of the most amazing experiences that someone can have because it really is that moment that changes the direction they're going to take forever, right? Yes. For me, there have been a number of moments that I could say that was the start point for escaping from Eden. That was the start point for the scars of Eden. And I'll, I'll mention a few start points. One was um, a period where I was, I had more leisure time than usual. I had a gap between job A and job B. And so like a lot of people, I started spending time Googling things uh, or watching things on YouTube, following my curiosity. Now, we all have things. Yeah. yeah, we all have things we're interested in that we promise ourselves, if I ever have the time, I'll look into that. And it was a moment like that, and it got me onto Ed Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. And I heard him speaking with great courage and passion about his desire to see the American government declassify its UFO papers, its UFO files, so that, and this was his goal, so that we as a species could take our place among the community of spacefaring civilizations, which he says we've not even acknowledged exists. And my jaw dropped when I heard him speak because I grew up in a time when the government policy concerning the UFO phenomenon around the world was not only non-disclosure, it was debunking, official debunking, and one could say threats and persecution over anyone else who would depart from the script. So I grew up with the UFO phenomenon as a joke. And then suddenly to find Ed Mitchell speaking that way, it got my attention. But it reawakened an interest that had been in my brain from a very young age. And I remember I was five or six years old. And I know I was no older than six because I know where we were living, what school I was going to. And I went to school one morning. Now, the school I went to was a Church of England school. So in that context, you're being taught mainstream science and mainstream Christian religion. These are the answers to the universe that you're receiving. And this one particular Monday morning, I remember it so clearly, it was an all school assembly and the uh, headmistress, Mrs. May, told us, now Mrs. Clark's class are gonna come in and they're going to teach us a new hymn. So Mrs. Clark, the one teacher who could play the piano, came in and played the hymn And her children sang this song that began with the words, when Jesus was a little boy. And the hymn went on to say, when Jesus was a little boy, he was a model student. He was as good as gold. He was a perfect child. He never did anything wrong. He never gave any cheek or grief to any grown up. And you children better be the same. (laughs) And I listened to that hymn and I thought, this is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Are we supposed to buy this? This is so transparent. They're just trying to get us to toe the line. And at that young age, I saw how 
institutional religion and the figure of Jesus uh, intersect and how the institution can use the figure of Jesus for its own purposes to manipulate people. And this in my six-year-old brain was what I was seeing and I didn't wow. like it. I thought I'm too smart for this. And I went home and I talked to my dad about it. And my dad was uh, absently reading a, a newspaper. This is, shows my age that this is what dads did in those days and had one of those half conscious conversations with yeah, his kid uh -huh. that we all have as parents. <laughs> and I said, I, it annoys me. I said, when the teachers talk about God like that, they don't know God. No one's ever met God for all they know. God, their God could be a giant green dragon. And my dad just said, yes, yes, you're probably right. Now, I don't know where that metaphor came from. But in my studies of ancient texts, the Bible in particular, in all the decades since, I've realized that a six-year-old can say very profound and accurate things. The presence of non-human, dragon-like entities in the Bible is totally unavoidable when you address any of the translation questions that are really obvious. And so I'd actually cotton on to two things, the presence of non-human, non-divine entities in the biblical story and the manipulative role that institutional religion can play. So that was kind of my start point. And it meant that at a later point in my life, when I became a Christian, I was only able to make that call because I could see clear blue water between the history of institutional religion and the figure of Jesus himself. Once I realized that the credibility of Jesus and institutional religion are two totally different questions, I was able to come to a conclusion that I found Jesus credible, that I found his teaching credible, and that I wanted to have a go at centering my life on that kind of teaching. So that was the equation that got me into my journey in ministry, my journey in Christianity. And the catalyst to my becoming a Christian was coming across Eric von Daniken at the age of 11. And again, it seems like a surprising trigger to get a person into spirituality or traditional Christianity. I later find that theology was Eric von Daniken's start point as well. And again, as a boy at school, seeing translation anomalies. But I knew him through Chariots of the Gods. My parents introduced me to his work. And as an 11-year-old, I clicked with the central ideas in his book because I felt he had really aptly put his finger on a problem we have in explaining ourselves, that there is a gap in our ability to explain ourselves as an intelligent, conscious, technological species. And when I asked the questions, where have we come from? The religious answer was, well, we're a special creation of God. Great, that's fine. So how come we're so obviously a kind of animal? If we're unique, how come we're clearly on the primate tree here? Can we explain this? Not really. And then if we go for a more scientific answer that we're the product of um, naturalistic, materialistic evolution, 
progress by chance, reinforcement by circumstance, survival of the fittest, all that. Well, then there's a slight problem in identifying us as the alpha species on the planet, because the only way we occupy that seat is because of our higher consciousness, intelligence, and our ability to generate technology. If you or I, Matthew, were set out in the wild with no resources, no technology, I think after three days, three nights, we'd either be ill, hospitalized, or we'd have passed away. How come all the animals can live out in the wild perfectly happily? They're adapted to life on planet Earth, and we seem very ill-adapted without our technology. So the question of how we made that leap to becoming a technological species, how do you explain that in the evolutionary paradigm? And you can't. It's not a sufficient paradigm to get you there. There's a gap. That's how I felt, at least at the age of 11. And Eric von Daniken put his finger on that question, and he said that maybe we should consider that the evolutionary model works better if we allow for the possibility of external interventions. Now, I didn't know at the age of 11, but Eric von Daniken wasn't the first person to say that. Two and a half thousand years ago, Plato argued exactly the same thing. He believed in some form of evolution that we had been developing on this planet, but he believed that there had been external interventions to upgrade us in terms of our intelligence, consciousness, and ability to generate technology. That was his view, and he had come to that view through research across various different fields. He had a scientific approach, we could say, that's his logic applied to observation. And then he had ancestral knowledge. And then he had what we might call information from altered states. Now, all that territory has become very interesting to me in the years since. I'd never heard of Plato at the age of 11, but Eric von Daniken was my gateway guy to get me onto the questions that just sat at the back of my mind for all the years I was in ministry, questions that never quite got settled, and they became my that's what I want to study when I have the time things. And so finally, I had the opportunity. I had the time. I talk about a, a, an ultimate Frisbee injury in escaping from Eden and needing to recuperate from that. And that was the opportunity I took to go back to the biblical texts, go back to the anomalies, treat them as translation questions, drill down into those and discover that a whole other story of human origins is hidden in plain sight in those texts. Yeah, and of course, anyone who knows my work couldn't would say that I couldn't agree more. And I and I and I absolutely can't. It to me, um, when you look at every single ancient text, every origin story, whether you're looking at the Zoroastrians origin story coming out of Persia, whether you're looking at any of the Sumerian or Akkadian origin stories, whether you're looking at anything from the Mediterranean cultures that surrounded that area. And anything from the Hopi in the Southwest United States to the um, all the way down through the Americas, Central America, down to South America, the Inca, the Aztec, the Maya, these origin stories, they don't say that we just came from an ape, do they? They don't say that we walked out of the forest and then onto two legs and then started to make tools and then create a civilization. What do they, what do these texts in, in a common sense, right? For someone who doesn't know, 
what do they say if you were to like lump them all together and give like a, a story that's almost reflects them all? What do they say about our origin story? What becomes very clear when you read them alongside each other is that the elements that repeat from culture to culture are elements that speak of visitations by advanced species from off planet who not only colonized our ancestors, but genetically modified us. Now, obviously they don't have the language we have of genetic modification, but they have a visual way of carrying those stories. And the clues are there that it's not a text that's gone around the world and been retold and retranslated. What we have is a visual memory, what our ancestors saw and the different cultures have different metaphors, different language for it, but they report what they saw. And these interventions, this colonization, and indeed processes of hybridization are the themes that repeat. And the yeah. memories of the visitations uh, are not stories with any other uh, zitz im Leben, to use the German phrase. There is no purpose behind these stories other than to carry memory. They don't glorify anybody. They don't glorify our ancestors. They don't glorify our kings and queens. They don't glorify the advanced species who came. In fact, the stories that repeat are all memories of traumas in our stories of origins. We have memories of planetary catastrophes. We have memories of genocides. We have memories of the uh, psychological horror of being governed over by entities who are not human and who cannot be reasoned with, who are unforgiving and appear to be all powerful to our, our distant ancestors. Those are the overlaps. And that for me was a real red pill moment when I saw how these ancestral narratives line up, repeat each other, finesse each other. Now, for a long time in my journey through ministry, I was at the evangelical end of the spectrum with regard to my general view of the Bible. And that's to say my general view of the Bible was that we had God's book. We had the true account of things. And I could affirm any overlap with other stories, but where the other stories differed, well, clearly ours was the true story and that was the false story. And the Bible, the way it's translated at present, and in particular the stories of beginnings in the Hebrew scriptures, sort of stands over and against all the other ancestral narratives. It's as if the current translation of the Hebrew scriptures says, this is the true story, forget what you've heard anywhere else, it's all bunkum. The moment I started addressing these translation questions and making some different translation choices, I realized that with a few key different translation choices, the Hebrew stories do a flip. They do a vault fast and suddenly they line up with all these other ancestral narratives and they confirm each other. The first thing I noticed was that the stories of beginnings in Genesis are summary forms of the Mesopotamian stories. They're summary forms of stories we find in the Sumerian, Arcadian, Assyrian, Babylonian corpus. So that raised both my eyebrows as soon as I saw that. That information has really been in the public domain since the 1830s, but it hasn't filtered its way through 
to popular consciousness. So it was a shock for me to see, oh my goodness, those really are the sources of Genesis. And then to do a world tour of mythologies and ancestral narratives and realize those parallel stories are everywhere. And they really do finesse each other. They finesse each other when it comes to our understanding of what was the cataclysm that all our ancestral narratives seem to go back to. Who was it who arrived? What was it that happened next? How many demographics arrived? What did they conflict over? How were we different from our ancestors once we'd been genetically altered? Or the answer to all those questions, they run in parallel, as you were saying, Matthew, all around the world. And you can go into other countries besides and hear the story repeat. And as soon as you realize there's this level of repetition, that it's not a literary borrowing, that these narratives are all vehicles of ancient memory curated by different cultures. You can't go back to those texts and read them the old way. They don't make sense the old way. They don't make sense in the conventional translations, morally, historically, things click into place when you start reading them alongside each other and reframe the story. Yes, and so based on exactly what you said then, which is, which is really, really well said, Paul, if that's the case, then if we had these stories that are encased in these memories and these incest, these stories that are carried on through verbally through all these different cultures and written down through ancient texts all around the world, and they set they tell almost the same story. Would you say then that that's one of the reasons why some of these conquerors of history, the Romans, the Spanish conquerors, and so many others that have come around the world that have gone into these places specifically? that we're told in our history books is because of a spice tra trade route to find something or some other flimsy reasoning for why they went somewhere, which doesn't match up with history. But would you say that those conquerors throughout the world, is that really one of the goals, right? To destroy this prehistory so you can write the whole narrative going forward, right? Any conqueror has to write history. That's just how it goes. You, you conquer someone else's country. You can't have the locals running the news agency. That's not going to work. If you have taken over somebody else's country with violence, if you want to say there was no massacre on that date in that square, then you say it. You can't have a local news agency saying different and showing film footage, so on and so forth. So the extinction of other information is part and parcel of colonization. And there are so many examples of this happening. And in the past, that meant extinguishing priesthoods. That meant extinguishing the curators of ancient knowledge as well as current information. So one of the most dramatic examples of that, I want to come back to Ghana in a moment. So don't let me forget that, Matthew. You can help me with my senior brain here. Let's go to... Central and South America, when the Catholic forces went into Central and South America from Portugal and Spain, they went in with their letters patent from the kings of Portugal and Spain and the Pope to use whatever force was necessary to take those territories and Catholicize them, take them for empire, take them for the church. And they went in to cultures that had curated 
entirely different explanations of our identity as a species and our origins as a species different to the Catholic mainstream story that was well in place by the 14 and 1500s. So what do you do with this alternative information? Well, you will take a few copies of the ancient texts and send them off to be archived. Kings of Spain, Kings of Portugal, the Pope can have copies in their libraries. No one else is allowed to see these documents. That culture must be destroyed. And so you destroy the texts and you execute the priesthoods. You are now the news agency. You are now the schools. You are now the churches. And you've attempted to delete and replace all the old narratives. And that's exactly what happened there. That's just pure history. That's what happened. But what, what happened was not a total extinction. Some of those texts were hidden, buried for their protection to safeguard the memory of their culture. The survivors, relatives of those ancient priesthoods went underground. That's a fact. We know it because 200 years later, some of those priests re-emerged with a text in the Quiche language and handed it, credit where it's due, to a Catholic priest, to a Dominican friar who was interested in the people he was pastoring, and they trusted him. And they said, would you like to hear our story of beginnings? And he said, yes, I would, because he was a scholar. And he took their text, translated it into Spanish, he did this in the very early 1700s. It became the Popol Vuh, which gave voice to the Mayan explanation of human origins. Now, I tell all that story because it's just so interesting, such an interesting example of an attempt to extinguish an old story and then the resurfacing of that story. It's become an esoteric story because the priest had had to go underground. And that's really the roots of our esoteric traditions and secret societies text hidden for their protection by secret priesthoods so that the information can survive. So that happened there. And the Popol Vuh is, was a revelation to me when I came to it and read that forbidden story of human origins and found, oh my goodness, this is a repeat of the themes I've found by retranslating the book of Genesis. Come back to Ghana, I did remember. When I was preparing for escaping from Eden to come out, I realized, oh my goodness, I better tell my parents-in-law what this new book is about. I've written a number of books previously, all in the mainstream of Christian spirituality and theology. And my parents-in-law are Christians. They're devout Christians, Baptist and Pentecostal background. They grew up in Ghana. And I thought they might find my new book a little bit confronting. Uh, and the subtitle of Escaping from Eden is, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? And just the very fact I've asked that question uh, is a, a horror and an offense to a lot of um, people with a, a traditional Christian faith. And I thought, I'm going to have to tell my mum and dad-in-law, this is where I'm going. <laughs> I I don't want this to uh, ruin our relationship. So they came and stayed for the weekend. We enjoyed some lovely food together, some lovely wine together. When everybody was happy and relaxed, I thought, okay, this is the moment. I'll tell them what the book's about. So I told them everything that we've just been 
talking about. And I said, actually, I believe this is the story in the Bible when we translate it properly. Well, it took me a while, obviously, to explain all this. And they sat absolutely stony faced as I was telling them this. I had no idea how it was going down. Poker faces on right to the end. But when I finally paused, my father-in-law leant back in his chair and he said, Paul, a penny has dropped. And what he meant was that all the anomalies in the biblical stories that he identified as a believer through the years, the, the moral nonsense of various stories, the things that don't make sense, the mistakes that God seems to make, suddenly made sense because of what I just said, which is that these old stories, many of them are not about God at all. They're about something else. Suddenly it made sense. And then my mother-in-law leant forward conspiratorially and said, Paul, we already know this story. In Ghana, we all know what you're talking about because in Ghana, they grew up as I did with the Christian answer to questions and the modern scientific answer to questions. But she said there is a folkloric tradition that speaks of a non-human presence on planet Earth intersecting with our history and involved in hybridization with Homo sapiens. They look human, but they're not human. And we call them the Mamiwata people. Not only that, we're very closely connected with a family who had an encounter with the Mamiwata people when their daughter was taken by them for three years and then returned. Well, my jaw dropped even lower and they told me this story about what happened to their daughter, which was, she was on Anloga Beach in the Kita district of the Volta region of Ghana in 1986, I believe was the year. And then she vanished and she wasn't seen for three years. When she reappeared, she, she found herself on the same beach and she found her way back to her parents' home. They were absolutely amazed and thrilled to see her and over the next few weeks, all they did was try to help her feel safe and welcome and loved and able to move on from whatever had happened to her. And what they believed had happened to her was she'd been kidnapped. It was slave trafficking, sex trafficking. Maybe it was a failed elopement. This was the story they expected to come from her lips. And it was some time before she told them the whole story. And her mother knew she was holding back something about the story. And finally, she begged and begged for her daughter to say what this cloud was that was hanging over her. And the daughter finally said, Mummy, the reason I couldn't contact you was because where I was held was in an underwater base. There were no devices by which I could contact you. I was made to have children, and the people who held me were not human. They were the Mummy Water people. Now, when she said that, they knew the Mammy Water stories. They never expected to hear that from their own daughter. It was a total shock to them, but they knew what she was talking about because that story is hundreds and maybe thousands of years old in Ghana. Well, hearing that, realizing we were so closely connected, drew me into another journey. And it was a journey that took me all around the world. That's not just a story you can hear in Ghana, the Mahurani tradition of Kenya, exactly the same. Travel down the eastern seaboard to the southern cone, you'll find the same story there. 
all up the western seaboard of Africa, the story repeats. Into the Caribbean, same story. Every single detail repeats. You can go to the Philippines, where there is vocabulary that exists pretty much only to tell that story. That vocabulary has its roots in India. Go into Europe, go to Greece. You'll hear the story of the Minoans, this ancient culture. I was in Greece. I asked what the roots were of this culture. And the tour guide told me, oh, the Minoans are descended from Minos, one of the hybrid children of Europa. Hybrid children, yes, Europa was taken from the beach. She was a daughter of one of the kings of Phoenicia. She was taken by a non-human entity that could actually shapeshift. And she had three hybrid children. One of them was Minos, the progenitor of the Minoan culture. In Greece, that's taught as history. The whole of Europe is named after that abductee, Europa. That's how mainstream that information has been in that part of the world. And then go into the Celtic, it's there in the Norse countries, of course, go into the Celtic countries. Wales has the story of Tilworth Tech. Every element of my friends, my family friend's story is the same in the Welsh telling. They're in the Irish telling. Go to Scotland, they have the same stories. And as I continued my research, I couldn't believe it when I found that these same dots had been joined by a Presbyterian minister in the parish of Aberfoyle in Scotland, who, listening to the experience of the locals, came to the conclusion that there is a non-human presence interfering with human beings and with a stakeholding in human history that is involved in hybridization. And he put it all in a book that was published in the early 1600s called The Secret Commonwealth. Now, you may know, Matthew, Presbyterian Christianity is pretty conservative. For a Presbyterian minister to come out with a book like that would have taken phenomenal courage. But by the time I'd made that journey, I realized I couldn't keep that narrative out of the sequel to Escaping from Eden. When today we hear from people who say, I was abducted by an alien, we react as if we'd never heard the like. And if some poor soul is brave enough to say, actually, they made me have children, so I have hybrid children, uh, we react as if that person must be mentally ill. Failing to acknowledge the same story has been told in every culture on the planet for thousands of years, and that when people tell that story, it in no way advantages them. When people tell that story in Kenya, they're likely to be medicated or taken to the priest to have an exorcism performed on them. It doesn't help them get a job. They don't make money from it. Nobody advantages themselves by telling these stories. And in our culture, Western culture, people hold these stories so closely because they know what the damage will be if they share them. And so the Scars of Eden, for me, resulted from that journey as well, wanting to honor that narrative tradition that is so broad and so old and yet so taboo in the 21st century. Yeah, and you certainly did. You certainly did. And I, that's why before I breach any other discussions off of what you just said, I want to read a quote from your book, The Scars, the Scars of Eden, which goes into exactly what you're, you're discussing just a second ago. But I want to expand on it after and discuss ancestral memory, scars, and trauma based on that. So in the latest book, The Scars of Eden, um, I want to read two paragraphs, which starts by saying, 
if any of this is true, if our ancestral narratives are carrying ancient memory, then the implications are far reaching. Consider for a moment, what would it do to the self-perception of a human race governed by entities demonstrable superior to themselves? What would it do to humanity's fundamental concepts of leadership for the first experience of it to be modeled of by beings with absolutely no fellow feeling for them? It is easy to see how the experience of such cold governance, devoid of any human empathy, would leave a mark on our collective psyche as a species and establish an unholy template for royal and government powers for the ages to come. That is truly powerful, Paul. And I wanna say that I have found the very, very same conclusions in my research as well. But I want you to expand on that a little bit. Explain, you, you explained a little bit a second ago about talking about how memories are carried by cultures around the world and sometimes written down, sometimes talked about verbally. But what about these memories that are carried on perhaps from someone who isn't even alive? What about memories from someone who maybe had past lives that knew about something? And the reason I want to ask that is so many people write me emails, just like you, messages where they say, man, Matt, when I've been going down this road of learning about all these ancient texts and all these secrets, it's more of like I'm remembering than actually relearning again. It's like there's some kind of a memory that exists that's there that's almost been waiting to be triggered. Something that exists there that has almost been forgotten, but it's not. Can you talk a little bit about these both traumas, these scars that we carry from war and genocide and being having, be, doing the bidding for all of these um, powerful individuals that have always been above us? This, and what, what those things do, everything from ancestral memories to traumas, how does that shape us yeah. today? And how does that shape our perceptions of who we are? Well, there are lots of layers to that question. Ancestral memory uh, is carried in so many ways. It's certainly carried by story. What your correspondents say is, is really powerful. It goes to what we are as human beings. If I go back to Plato, Plato argued that a human being is primarily a consciousness, a being of consciousness. And his view is that our conscious existence precedes our material life and survives it. And that we have this material life in order to learn things, that we are part of a huge cosmic learning. And because he had that view that our consciousness comes from cosmic consciousness, source consciousness, then individuates, then becomes individual material beings on individual journeys and a shared journey. That's how he, that was his framework for understanding why learning often feels like remembering. He believed that everything we learn is something remembered. And very often people talk about a feeling of recognition when they learn something. I think it was Tolkien who said when he discovered um, Middle English, he recognized it. Um, I, I can relate to that. 
I think many of us have that feeling of knowing, but we don't know how we know. So Plato had that explanation for it. There's the whole layer of epigenetic memory as well, memory that's carried on our genes. I met somebody just recently who is a pharmacist and he is very, very thin. And I said to him, what's your secret to remaining so slim, which is an, an interest of mine in midlife. And he said, actually, I have a very interesting story. Our ancestors were not thin. And then my, and I think he said, my grandfather was in Auschwitz with his parents. And to survive, their bodies had to work out how to survive and be incredibly thin. And when they came out of Auschwitz, they had children who were very thin. And then they had children who were very thin. So some change in their programming had occurred through that trauma and had been remembered, one could say, at a cellular level. Now, that's a very dramatic physical example of some kind of a knowledge that has been carried on the genes. I think there are other kinds of information that are carried on the genes. Anyone who's had kids knows this, that they will have a brand new baby who's never existed before, and bit by bit they realize there are character traits there that are the same as grandpa's, that are the same as grandma's, that this baby has a natural ability to play the keyboard, just like grandpa did. And you think, how on earth can things like that be carried on the genes? And yet they are. So there's a level of information, knowledge, memory that's carried on the genes. So all this relates to your, your question. But there's something about the persistence of this memory in our psychology as well. And just as you were asking the question, Matthew, it occurred to me that my grandmother began her working life as a servant in a big house. A family of five people lived in a huge house in Buckinghamshire, and that family of five needed 50 servants working for them so they could enjoy their life. 50 servants, and I don't know how many tenants paying them rent so that they, the privileged five, could enjoy their life. Now, if you interviewed people from my grandparents' generation where it was considered a great opportunity for a girl to get a job in the big house, working, I don't know how many hours a day for this other family, not allowed to have a boyfriend, not allowed to get married, not allowed to leave the premises without that family's permission. They thought that was a great deal. And you ask them why they thought it was a great deal. Well, it meant we were part of the life of that family. And I remember hearing an interview with some people whose career started that way. And the interviewer said, you talk as if you feel that they were better than you were. Oh, well, they were was the answer. Well, where does that mentality come from, that it is a privilege to be a slave for other human beings who you will regard as better than you, and you're counted as a privilege to be their slave? Where does it come from? And in the quote you read, it referred to the idea of 
the psychology of a species that is serving another species that is demonstrably superior? What does it do to their self-esteem? And I think we've got an epigenetic memory there. I think we've got something burned into our psychology that has hardwired us to serve superiors. And how often does feudalism reinvent itself so that our society operates as strata of classes and orders of people, all of us serving those better than ourselves? You know, you can have republics, you can have revolutions, but the feudalism still reasserts itself. And it's very sad to see that actually through Christianity, that feudalism often reasserts itself. Um, the way the Roman Empire used Christianity was to try and hallow the feudal structure of the empire. When they put the early bishops in purple, it anchored the church to the feudalism of the Roman Empire. Your bishops are here, you are here, and the emperor's here. Uh, that's why it was so useful to the empire to have a department of religion, which is what uh, Christianity became. Uh, another way I think it's burned into our psyche, I'll give a particular example. A few years ago, Great Britain got a new prime minister. I'll mention no names, but this prime minister came in and effectively said, you're all going to have to work harder for worse conditions, be treated worse, for less pay, and you'll thank me for it. And to my amazement, about half the population said, yes, strong leadership. And I thought, hold on, why do we consider that strong leadership? Why is it that we use the language of strong leadership for leaders who force a policy through, whether it's popular or not, no matter how many people it hurts, no matter how many people object, that's strong leadership. Even in the churches, you hear strong leadership. That's the paradigm. Why don't we call it strong leadership when someone comes along with empathy? and compassion and says, we are not going to make a decision until we have heard from all parties, all the parties who will be affected, considered all the possible outcomes and ways forward. And when we have listened and understood, we will formulate a way forward that is good for all. Now, when people say that that's regarded as weak leadership, why? I believe that whole paradigm goes back to a time when our leaders had no fellow feeling with the masses because the leaders were not human and we were the workforce and they'd engineered us to be the workforce. That's the story our ancestors tell of our origins as a species. And it gives an explanation as to why we are so amenable to being stratified to being governed over in a compassionless way that serves the interests of the few. It explains why we are so predisposed to worship, if I can say, the 1% and count it as a virtue. Um, it translates into so many things, but it, it served us very ill as societies. And understanding that completely reframes my reading of Jesus. When I get to Jesus and hear him say, you have no superiors. Jesus said, you know how people are, how they have those with absolute power, the leaders and then the people at the bottom. It must not be so among you, he said. You have no superiors. Call no one your leader, no one your father. 
you're all peers, you're all brothers and sisters. And the Apostle Paul shoots that concept in the foot as well. The whole concept of sacrificial religion, where we count it as a virtue to sacrifice to superiors. Paul shoots that in the foot in one of his most important teachings in the book of Acts. And I wouldn't have noticed that if I hadn't gone back to these ancient stories and realized this is what we're being told. There are stories that speak of entities that are so clearly not human, governing over human beings in the Hebrew scriptures, that really do sound like reptilian beings, that sound like dragons, that have a voracious appetite for edible offerings, and the people's job is to bring them their edible offerings. These are the Elohim of the Hebrew stories. These are those who engineer in the Popol Vuh. And in the Popol Vuh, it says it so plainly, they came, they saw our, our primate ancestors and said, let us engineer for ourselves avatars who will do the work and bring us our food. And they really sought to hardwire us for that life. And the experiments are recorded of trying to get to a being who would do that. And the stories of the Popol Vuh are fascinating because they have several attempts that don't work. They create beings that are not intelligent enough to serve them. And then they generate something. It sounds like the engineer something like a gorilla that was very strong and capable, had no interest in serving superiors. Oops. And then they generate something that's too conscious that has a little bit too much ability to anticipate things, too much precognition, too much remote viewing. Well, how on earth do you manage a servant species like that? And so they then have to dumb us down to the point where we can be managed. And very interestingly, the dumbing down is an external agency. It's a vapor that's sprayed over human populations. I read that and uh, Tingle went down my spine because I realized that the Nigerians tell a very similar story of non-human entities, Abassi and Atai, who engineer our ancestors and then become disturbed that we're too capable, too intelligent. How are they going to manage that? And again, it's an external response. They release devices into the environment that will dumb the humans down so that we're sick, anxious, mentally ill, mentally non-acute, great, now we've got a workforce. And I believe that our ancestors told those stories and curated them to try and equip us to live in this world, to try and forewarn us that there will always be forces, human and otherwise, who will want us to serve superiors and to be wired that way. And then we have enlightened ones like Buddha and Jesus, who see us all as peers and say that we should reframe the whole idea of worship as loving one another, reframe the whole idea of service as we serve one another, and that that's actually how we best navigate life on earth, not believing in societies of inferiors and superiors. All that very deliberately engineered, hardwired, taught by the non-humans who governed our ancestors in the deep past. And I explore some of those connections in the scars of Eden. That was very, very well said. And I could not agree more. The whole idea of us not understanding why so many of these concepts seem to be entrained within us, but not just from our parents, something from long ago, 
something about how we seem to have those memories, especially traumatic ones, just ingrained in our DNA and even carried perhaps even in many other ways beyond DNA. Absolutely. In this, perhaps the Akashic record of our story, right? Of I, all I agree. Past lives that we've lived and we're carrying those, all those traumatic events as scars and they're, and they're weighing down on us and we're carrying all of them. And the only way for us to finally push forward to reach that next step the next stage of our consciousness is to be able to free ourselves of the burden of that darkness. And the only way for us to truly get that to that point is to look it straight in the eye, to look it in the face, everything that we've come from, to say no, that we're not going to do those things anymore, to not blindly be drafted to go off to war, only to kill a fellow brother or sister that we don't even know, or to be, take part in some something that destroys the earth or causes corruption to to others to live in a state like you said this hierarchy system where so many suffer while so many exist in this small little window where they have everything they want there's so many things here that go beyond simply the corruption of a few it's something where it's a system that when you when you look at it from every single side and you read every single text and you look at all of the things that have happened, you see that it's a system here that truly is so much more about than just keeping us productive. It's a system to keep people in a certain conformed mindset where they don't ask questions. They blindly take leadership and they take this narrative that they're told and they just go with it. They don't question anything. And then we just carry all these things along with us and we don't really make any progress. So, Paul, I'm going to go ahead and read this wonderful last quote from you, and then I want you to expand on it for a second, but then tell us everybody to end out, um, tell everybody about your perceptions on the positive side of this. Where are we going? Where do you see this whole story going? Um, so to end out here on this, I want to read one last part from Paul's book, Scars of Eden, that really just speaks to what he just said a minute ago. In the beginning. Our world mythologies put forward a more fundamental explanation as to why these same issues harried and harassed our ancestors. Simply put, it was that our ancestors were governed over rulers who were not human. It is the fundamental reason that the Sky Council lacked any kind of fellow feeling with the human beings as they presided over, and why it was capable of such cynical decisions with regard to the welfare of ordinary human beings. It is why the powerful ones of the Hebrew stories could send their humans out to war against each other so frequently with little or no regard to the human cost of their squabbles. So, Paul, just briefly speak about this in regards to these powerful ones and this governing of us through war and fear. And then let's end on a positive note and discuss where we're going and how we're going to shed this darkness and finally be able to get past these collective burdens we all hold. Well, in the Scars of Eden, I argue that so many of the wars and culture wars that we're experiencing right now in the 21st century are the same conflicts that were framed in our ancestral narratives. Our ancestors talk about this Sky Council, a diversity of ET demographics, conflicting with one another over agendas for Project Humanity. Just before Christmas, Haim Ashed, the former chief of space security for Israel, 
he held that position for 27 years, the Brigadier General, he came out with a statement saying that on the basis of that work, his experience, his understanding is that there is an intergalactic federation with the stakeholding in planet Earth. They've chosen not to self-disclose, but they're in contact at a covert government level. I was amazed to hear him say that he is repeating what our ancestors have said for thousands of years. And when we read about the old, old conflicts, we read about conflicts over how many human beings should there be on a planet? The question of how much population is overpopulation and then how to manage that. That's very live uh, in 2021, as I'm sure you know. Access to food and water, huge issues right now. Is it a right to have access to safe drinking water for corporations or for individual human beings? I'll mention my gran again, who when she was growing up, she lived in a house that had no running water in the house. They had to go to the village pump, pump the water up, carry it to the house. And there came a moment when the village pump stopped producing enough water. And that was because a corporation down the road had been given priority over that water by the local government. Well, we're seeing exactly that same problem playing out in the 21st century, access to water, access to food. Access to food is interesting because it relates to two different models of farming. There is the traditional combination, organic, rotational farming that has served us well for centuries, and thousands of years. And it is now in conflict with and being threatened by the genetic modification, petrochemical, industrial scale farming, two different models of farming in conflict. The first one, the organic one, is so vital because in cultures all around the world, what happens is you grow your crops and then you seed next year's harvest from this year's harvest. And that's how you live and how you survive on the planet. The industrial is trying to put a stop to that. I believe that conflict was framed about 10,000 years ago by an ET demographic who turned up and set the industrial model in train. There was an intervention at the top of the Fertile Crescent where all the accoutrements of civilization, banking, legal systems were supplied along with lessons in genetic modification of crops. So at the beginning of that story, and it's now in conflict with the model that was taught by those who came tens of thousands of years ago and nurtured cultures like Aboriginal Australian culture, Native American culture, taught our ancestors on that side how to live in harmony with the planet. So that war that is so important and relevant right now framed tens of thousands of years ago. We've got um, battles over access to medication. We've got a system of patents that effectively limits the access people have to cures. Well, that story is there in the book of Genesis. It's there in Genesis 3. The humans must not have access to the tree of life, to the healing botanicals that have been previously used. We can't have them living forever, say the powerful ones who are governing over them. And then we've got conflicts over information, very relevant right now as we try to have a public conversation about health issues. That reflects in debates over education. Just last year in Australia, 
there were some legislative changes that push us further to a training paradigm for our universities. And essentially what the government was saying is that the job of the universities is to produce not educated people, but people who are industry ready. And when I heard this phrase of human beings who were industry ready, never mind if they can think and explore and discover and make progress, it took me right back to the Pope or Vu, said, let's have human beings who can work for us and bring us our food. So these conflicts are the same ones. They're ages old and our ancestral narratives are there to equip us in dealing with them. Now, when you see the connections and think, oh, my goodness, we're still living in the same world, it can be very deflating and disempowering. And you can think, well, what's the point of anything then? What can I do? And we have to get beyond that moment of deflation and disempowering. And to come back to something we've already touched on, there is actually a really powerful lesson and encouragement in the epic story of Abassi and Atai, where they dumbed down the humans with devices in the environment. There's something very powerful and encouraging in the Popol Vuh, where they dumbed down the humans with a vapor sprayed over the humans. What that tells us is that intrinsically, we are highly intelligent, very conscious, very able, wired for progress, and that it's external things that have to be done to us to stop that from happening. And as I read more and more ancestral narratives, I realized that's right. That's who we are. That actually governments all around the world try to manage our level of awareness and intelligence, or they try and distract us, or they misdirect us, or they over-entertain us, because naturally we are highly intelligent, conscious, capable, resilient beings. And according to the Pope or Vu, we have higher cognitive abilities than we often use. We have better precognition than we generally use. We have better telepathic connection than we generally use. We have better self-healing abilities, better remote viewing abilities. And the cultures that have curated these stories of origins have also uh, curated modalities, methods for switching these higher abilities back on. And that's what the mystical traditions and the shamanic traditions are all about. Turning us on again, making us more conscious, able to live more intelligently. And so I suddenly realized that human origins and human potential are absolutely bound together. And my vision of what's possible for humanity collectively and us individually has gone like that through my research. And so the appetite I've come away with from the scars of Eden and escaping from Eden is I want to live more conscious, more intelligent. I want us all to have a better human experience. I want us all to learn how to switch off the slave setting, live without fear, live more conscious. And I believe that potential is very real and we're able to help each other do that. And so that's where it's taken me. And so I'm going back now, this is where I'm going in the sequel, to the shamanic traditions that tell us how to do this, to the mystical traditions that embody how to do this, so that we might remember together what it can really mean to be a human being, which is an amazingly wonderful thing. And if you think about it, those who come here from other places to hybridize with it, hybridize with homo sapiens, because we've got something 
that they want in our mix. There's something about us that is so powerful and so attractive that our near relatives from other planets want some of what we have. And my general view of life in the universe is that life is the rule rather than the exception in the cosmos. I believe in panspermia, as did Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, that the genetic coding for conscious, intelligent biological life has been seeded throughout the cosmos. That whenever it lands in a fertile environment, which basically means a planet with water, it will produce forms of life like us. And yet there's been something special about what's happened on planet Earth. There's a unique blend of animal strength, mammal emotion, higher consciousness that we embody as homo sapiens, that we host consciousness in a very unique and special way. And so my appetite is enjoying that and learning to switch that on. Beautifully said, Paul. That's such a positive way to end out, to show people that no matter how much darkness and means there is to try to push us back and hold us back from this potential future that we all know where it's going to happen, right? Human beings can't stay in this consumption state of living in a place of material gain and not having any connection to their spiritual side, their consciousness side, the side that connects us to the vast cosmos, back to the very source of creation itself. We are the embodiment of that. We're the, the experience to be able to understand what it's like to be a creator being, but also be just a physical being here that has to toil in this reality. And I think that's why we're such a special experiment and why there's so much interest in where our future goes. And I just want to tell people to end out in terms of everything that Paul said, you can choose to focus on the negative and the darkness, or you can choose to be aware of those things, but then rise above them and learn for them to become a teacher to the rest. See, it's not about sitting back and watching all, everything fall around you. It's about becoming some, someone and something that can make a change and be part of this collective path we have to finally reach a better place where we've been we've been prophesized by every culture around the world to go to this this is the age of Aquarius that we're moving towards and I truly appreciate so many other researchers especially like Paul who can bring that angle that he brings of understanding the spiritual and the ancient connection back to the forefront so thank you so much Paul for joining me on this wonderful discussion it was fantastic and you're one of my favorite researchers and speakers so I, I really appreciate you sitting down here and talking to me for a couple of minutes. Um, please go ahead before we close out. Um, I'm going to give an announcement at the end, but go ahead and tell everybody um, a little bit about how to follow your work and anything new coming up in the future. Sure. You can find me on YouTube at the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube or the Fifth Kind TV. Go to my website, paulanthonywallace.com. That's Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. And you can follow the research that I'm doing that's produced Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden and the sequel to come. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Hive, wherever books are sold, get hold of my books. And if you want to get into conversation with me, you can do that through my website or through the comments on YouTube because I'm always there dialoguing with people. And as I say, that gives me so much fuel for my fire pursuing all these areas well thank you so much paul and again i highly recommend you check out his books 
Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden. Um, Paul is a fantastic writer and a great researcher and a speaker. So look for more work with him and I in the future because we've already done several shows and we really enjoy um, conversations together. Um, and then one uh, major announcement is that uh, Paul Wallace and I, along with Billy Carson, will be at the Holy Grail Multiverse Convention in Palm Springs on November 20th and 21st. So make sure you look into that to get tickets. Paul and I are going to be speaking about ancient man and perhaps some other topics as well. Um, and that's going to be a really cool conference to finally see us in person if you haven't met us and to be have all those great minds in one place. Um, so thanks again, everyone. If you haven't uh, seen this before, this is Mastermind Discussions. You can find that on my YouTube channel, Matthew LaCroix, as well as several other mediums like my website, thestageoftime.com. Thank you so much, Paul, for being here. Until the next time. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks, Matthew.